Okay, welcome back, everybody. I'm Rob Ehrman from Wayne State. I am back with Dr. Nathan Shapiro, who is an internationally renowned sepsis expert. This is a podcast series covering current and novel approaches to sepsis detection in the emergency department. In episode one, we covered sort of the historical aspects of sepsis screening, things like SIRS and SOFA, QSOFA, how these can be used in the ED. I think summarizing what Dr. Shapiro had said is that it's sort of data-driven approach to screening as you see the patient and you take in all their historical factors, you take in their lab data, their vital signs, and that helps you make some decisions about how you should best care for them. Biomarkers are an emerging area of research, an ongoing area of research that hopefully will improve the way in which we sort of recognize and manage sepsis. There certainly at this point is not a single biomarker that's, quote, the best. Uh, Dr. Shapiro had said in episode one that he thinks that sort of in the future, it's going to be a panel of biomarkers that's going to prove to be most useful and potentially some time-varying components to these biomarkers. And so we also discussed a little bit of transcriptomics, which involves identification and quantifications of thousands and thousands of molecules. And so what I was hoping to talk about in episode two is some of the ways in which these sort of massive data streams can be managed and utilized because obviously a clinician can look at CBC and lactate level and chemistries and sort of synthesize all that information together to make some decision about what they're going to do for a patient. But when it comes to when you start incorporating multiple biomarkers, and if you think about transcriptomics, we're talking about thousands of molecules. And then on top of it, you have all of the clinical data points. And so use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, is again, another area of very active sepsis research. And so Dr. Shapiro, I would kind of like to hear your thoughts sort of in general about how this is going to play into sort of sepsis management in the future, but maybe just so we're kind of on the same page, we could sort of define, or you could tell us sort of how you think about like, what is machine learning? What is artificial intelligence? Is it all the same thing? Or is it sort of more a diverse group of technologies that kind of get lumped together when maybe they shouldn't? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. And, and really, AI and artificial intelligence is such a buzzword. There's so many times where I'll be in a conversation, they'll tell me about the artificial intelligence techniques. And then I say, okay, well, I'm really interested. When you dig into it, you find out it's just basically a rules-based system that somebody's called AI. So what is artificial intelligence? So at the end of the day, the way I like to think about it, It's a series of math and programming approaches where essentially computers have really um, learned to take information and teach itself. Kind of like the old movie War Games, for those of you who are familiar with it, that is meant to be artificial intelligence, which is the computers are, are learning. So you have machine learning, which heads in that direction, and then AI and deep learning models go a couple layers deeper, and it's really based in technique of the computer learning. So at the end of the day, one way I like to simplify it, it's really artificial intelligence is an opportunity for computers to use data to see things that the human may or may not see, or to look at complex relationships that the human may or may not see. So the way the math the programming is done is it might take really high, high dimensional information, say 
20, 30, 40, 50 pieces of information and create complex relationships in order to understand for a given patient the risk of a certain um, outcome. Now, just to calibrate our, our language, we have in machine learning, you have features and labels. And the parallel in the way we talk about a lot clinically or traditional statistics is predictors or outcomes. So a feature and predictor, a label and an outcome, those are, are, are parallel definitions or par things, two words saying the same thing. So when we talk about the opportunity for machine learning, it's really for us to take the information that's available to us and see if we can use some of these techniques to better our, inform our assessment of a patient. So how could it be used at the bedside? Well, if you have an, a machine learning model or an AI model that has taken volumes of information, vital signs, comorbidities, laboratory tests, and it's been trained to predict an outcome that's going to be relevant for a clinician, that's where the computer might take, say, this patient is at high risk for this label or outcome based on all the information I see for a given patient, based on all the information I've learned from 100,000 patients previously. And so the opportunity for AI and machine learning is to help the patient who's at the bed, to help the doctor at the bedside to know what the computer sees. And the person or the clinician at the bedside can use that information to integrate it into their decision-making. Yeah, I think that's a nice summary and certainly highlights the the, the fact that uh, machine learning is a there are it's not a single entity but represents sort of a closely related but obviously distinct approaches algorithms. You know, one of the limitations or criticisms of machine learning that that often gets sort of thrown around is lack of explainability or that it's black box which sort of more or less you know, means that the algorithm will make decisions for you, kind of, it will spit out an, an outcome, but you can't, there's no way to really for a human to understand how it arrived at, at, at that outcome. And so my question is, right, this has sort of like a, like a Skynet vibe to it. And is, do you think that this is something that, I mean, do you see this as a problem? Do you see this as something that clinicians are going to be willing to accept? Like there's a, an algorithm running in the background and, you know, we're all familiar with like sepsis alerts that are fairly terrible and we all probably just click through them. Maybe I shouldn't admit that publicly, but uh, do you think clinicians are going to be comfortable with these algorithms running and, and be willing to, you know, make decisions based on that? Yeah. So I think it's a really good point, but you, I think you've also, in some ways in the statement you just made, in some ways m might've lumped two issues, right? One issue is the black box. The other one is the alerts being no good, right? So the worst scenario is a black box set of algorithms with alerts that aren't clinically useful. Now, if the black box got to be very useful, if it, if it was an algorithm that was a black box, but when it said this patient is going to be intubated in the next 48 hours, it was always right, I think we would get over the black box bit and get used to figuring out how to work. And so I think I'm a little less worried about black box. What I don't like is a lot of, a lot of these algorithms have historically used big data as an excuse not to be methodologically rigorous. And what I mean by that is they've said, we've trained this model on 500,000 visits. But when you look at what they trained it on and their label or their outcome was something that wasn't clinically relevant, that destroys the entire model. 
So if they use ICD-10 codes to train the final outcome, and it turns out the ICD-10 codes aren't really representative of what we're looking for as clinicians, the whole model is not going to be calibrated to what's useful. I mean, at the end of the day, to sit on the soapbox again, you have artificial intelligence, which is the, the, the summation of what the computer sees. We also have something called human intelligence, which is, or clinical gestalt, which is what we use at the bedside every day. So as humans, we're, or as clinicians, we're taking all this bit of information available to us. What's the white count? What's the blood pressure? How does the patient look in order to get our HI or human intelligence assessment? So what we need is the AI assessment to be as good or better than the human intelligence assessment. So then we can really start to use it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's, I think that highlights a, a critically important point is, you know, we move forward with technology and the era of big data, which is like more is not necessarily better just because it's more, it has to be done in a rigorous fashion and the right, you have to sort of select the right outcomes and it has to be, One might you know, say it has to be done in a way that actually makes it. Yeah. And I'd also like to comment, there are some some techniques in machine learning, Shapley values, which is a way of kind of quantifying. It's a way of almost trying to make the black box a little more transparent. So a Shapley value, artificial intelligence, and my kind of basic understanding is it's really a way of assigning a weight to the importance of a given factor. So there are ways where we can try and make artificial intelligence more transparent, but I think we have to think of it on two axes which is the transparency of the model and the usefulness of the model. And I think if the model can become useful, I'm not as worried about the transparency, but when you have a black box that is kind of giving you something that's not so useful, then it just becomes really something that is more getting in the way than being helpful. Right, for sure. And, you know, I I guess what I wonder about or think about is, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, ICD-10 codes, and then there's these sepsis DRGs that, you know, are not, really all that accurate, or at least don't always answer the questions that we want, at least with the sort of level of granularity that we need. And so what are there potential solutions to this problem? Because, you know, we were talking about heterogeneity before, and I think you said on, on, on episode one, and, and I love the example of the this idea that a, a, a healthy 18-year-old comes in because they stepped on a piece of glass and they have some, uh, you know, an abscess and they're, they're septic. And then you have a 75-year-old from a nursing home who's got diabetes and hypertension and was a smoker and they have bacteremia and they're septic too. And like, in some ways, like we call them the same thing and we would treat them the same way when of course they're not physiologically even uh, remotely similar. And so what are some ways that you think that we're going to be able to uh, sort of how are we going to collect enough data that reflects the heterogeneity that exists across the spectrum of sepsis that we can then use to sort of inform some of these uh like automated approaches to you know diagnosis or prognosis and that kind of thing I mean, look, I think AI is a powerful tool and the information age, is, it's, it's exciting and there's lots of opportunity. And I think as we're able to increase the quality of the research, as we're able to link high quality clinical research with advanced data analytics is when I think we're really going to be able to push the field forward. 
So one area that, that for me is particularly interesting is ways that we can take um, multi-dimensional data and reduce it down to something we can work with. So there's an approach called the UMAP, which is really a two-dimensional two approach where it almost looks like a map in front of you, and it's two-dimensional by definition because it's, it's on a page. But what it does is it'll take streams of data with 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 variables and put it in and kind of represent where you're at on the map in two dimensions. And so what that does is it allows the computer to take comorbidities, vital signs, all kinds of information from the EMR that can get out as discrete values, and then put it into machine learning models. And then say, if you are at the upper left-hand corner of the map, that means by definition patients are acting in a similar way. So now we're reducing heterogeneity. And then you can look at the characteristics of that group of patients and say, is there a specific um, therapy I can apply to them? Is there a specific clinical course they're likely to have? So it's, I know it might sound a little abstract, but really what it's doing is it's an approach where you can take a lot of information and reduce it down. And then we, if we do this in a methodologically rigorous way, we're going to work towards reducing heterogeneity and sepsis. We're going to work towards identifying patients who might act similarly. We're going to work towards identifying patients who might have differential treatment effects for a certain drug. In other words, towards finding a group of patients who might respond better to one drug than a different group of patients or one approach to sepsis than a different group of patients. Yeah, I like that. That's really that's that's really fascinating, and I think it's a. Uh, I think it kind of has to be the way forward because, as you said, you know there has to be a way to reduce this high dimensional data into a way that's digestible for clinicians, uh, so that we can right identify phenotypes and subphenotypes in patients that need sort of different treatments, and so as we sort of move towards kind of the latter part of this talk and thinking about wrapping up, um, you know, one, yeah, a question I have is what do you think it's going to, what is it going to take to get more clinicians, you know, well, just to get clinicians on board with some of these more advanced techniques in the sense of, you know, we all have highly functional computers between our ears and there's innumerable sort of non-visual cues and just, you know, your clinical impression, right? We call it clinical gestalt. When you see a patient that kind of tips you off to certain things that a patient has diagnosis A versus diagnosis B. But uh, to me, a little bit of the darker side to that is while, while physician gestalt is not as well studied as some other things, uh, in some spheres, we're pretty good, but uh, you know, a lot of times we're actually not all that good. Yet people want to hold on to their gestalt more or less for you know multifactorial reasons. So, how are we going to? To me, that seems like a big hurdle that's coming probably not too far down the road as technology gets gets better and we can do more and more advanced things quicker and quicker in the ED. Like, are, are there ways you think we can ease the sort of transition to relying more on? I guess, computer-generated answers to questions. And I think what the, the problem being people not wanting to uh, seed some of their own autonomy and decision-making. Yeah, I think part of it is you're never going to seed it, right? So the idea isn't, when I see a lot of these studies, they'll say, we compared either this test or this algorithm or this new technology, we compared it to physician decision-making or clinician decision-making. 
And really, I don't think that's what we want to do. You know, we don't want to compare the new test to clinical decision making. We want to show the new test. We want to show the clinic, the clinician versus the clinician plus the new test, or the clinician versus the clinician plus the new information. So really what we want to show is that these um, AI algorithms or whatever it is, when put in the hands of a clinician and used in a, in a thoughtful way, that will make it better than the clinician alone. If we take, you know, if we look historically, take um, lactate and sepsis. So lactate and sepsis is something we did a lot of early research on in the emergency department. And we had done a study initially at, at Beth Israel back in early two, uh, like around 2002, give or take. And it, lactate wasn't something we were using in sepsis. We made it available to the clinicians. Initially, they said, oh, what are we doing with this? You know, I have these patients with high lactate. I wouldn't have admitted them to the ICU. Now I'm admitting to the ICU. But at the end of the day, there's no test that's perfect. But a lot of times the clinicians said, gee, they looked well, the lactate was high, and they ended up going into a bad direction. And so with experience, we said, hey, look, lactate looks like it actually is a pretty useful test. And if my lactate isn't getting better, the patient's more likely to do worse. And as we got clinical experience with it, we figured out how to incorporate it into our clinical practice. And I think that needs to be the direction forward for artificial intelligence and these algorithms. Not they're going to replace the clinician, but how as a clinician can I be glad that the AI algorithm issued a flag? And I went back in and take a closer look at the patient. And you know what? They actually were more tachypnic than I had really appreciated. And now I'm going to change my therapy. Thank you, AI algorithm, for saving. And so the more it, the algorithm needs to be valid, it needs to be offering accurate information. And then as clinicians, we need to feel to, to figure out how we can incorporate it into a good way, in, into our treatment approaches in a good way. Yeah, thank you. I love that. I, I think that's a great way to to think about it and and frame it. And you know, it's not just smoke and mirrors. It's true, right? It's like augmented decision making. It's not seeding your decision making to a machine. It's it's combining the skills and knowledge that you as the clinician have with the high dimensional data processing power that an algorithm has. Um, and uh, uh, as I said, I really think that's a, a great way to think about it. And so that's probably something that's coming in coming in the future. And so now as we think about wrapping up, sort of the perennial question that that experts get asked at the end of interviews is, you know, both where are we going? So my question is, what do you think sepsis screening is going to look like in 20 years? Or if that's, you know, too vague and too hard to answer, if you could, uh, you've been studying sepsis for many, many years. And there still remains a lot of unanswered questions. So if you could sort of magically be granted the power to answer one question, poof, tomorrow, problem you could solve, any particular question that it would be? So I'm going to answer it in two formats, or in in two parts. Number one, what do I think it's going to look like in the future? I think it is going to be AI models that incorporate multiple axes of information. It's going to incorporate still underlying comorbidities plus vital signs and acute aspects of the care. It's going to be a panel of biomarkers that are used, and that's all going to be incorporated into some advanced AI algorithm. I I do think that's where we're going to end up, and we're going to crack this in 20 years. The question, though, and the real challenge in sepsis, okay, I know they're sick, and I know they're due to us. They're sick because of an infection, but what am I going to do about it? 
And so the real thing I would want answered is linking that diagnostic and prognostic assessment with the therapeutic action that's going to get the patient the best outcome. So a little broad, but at the end of the day, I think that's what we're working towards, which is figuring out if they're how sick they are, if it's due to an infection, and most importantly, what are the actions I can do or the treatments I can administer for the patient that's going to get them the best outcome. Yeah, that's a big one. And I think, I wonder if what, you know, is the sort of diagnostic and prognostic aspects get a little bit uh, more refined if alongside uh, or sort of in parallel, if sort of treatment or interventions are going to have to be, uh, are going to grow and develop too, because, you know, again, this is another area that I find sort of fascinating and uh, try to be hopeful about it, but the sepsis treatment at this point is, is is pretty uniform across the spectrum of severity, right? I mean, it's like IV fluids, antibiotics, source control, vasopressor supportive care if the patient's needed. And so I wonder is, is sort of like the final question, if you if there's any sort of uh, treatment modalities or changes in, in, in that space that you think are promising or anything else you wanted to kind of let our audience know about before we wrap up? Not in particular, but the treatment for sepsis has been eluding us. We had a, 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 it's a longer, it could be seven podcasts of its own. We had activated protein C and Zygris that's been subsequently pulled off the market. I think what COVID did show us is that concerted efforts focused um, on, you know, one theme of disease entity, and we can come up with novel therapeutics. And I think we need to figure out how to reduce the heterogeneity and come up with novel therapeutics for different aspects and different types of sepsis so that we can um, reduce the morbidity and mortality of sepsis. And I think that's the real challenge in front of us. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you again, Dr. Shapiro, for taking time out of what I'm sure is an exceedingly busy schedule to chat with us over the course of these two episodes. And... I hope the audience enjoyed it. 